So asking questions is a good thing. If you're, uh, maybe this is your first week, uh, we have been in this series called Questions. And what we're trying to do is ask some really hard questions regarding God's character and the nature that comes with him. Um, because sometimes we have these questions in our hearts and mind. Maybe you, you've had one of those is, has been your question in the past. And I really hope that we're doing a good job asking some of them and, and, and answering some of them uh, with you to be sure we can't quite possibly answer everything on a given Sunday morning, especially in a 30, 35, 40 minute uh, message. But we're doing our best to begin the process of answering some of these questions very honestly uh, and in a way that kind of digs uh, into the scriptures. I want to encourage you uh, to keep not only keep asking questions, but if you missed any of our series, we've, we've tackled like, um, does God really exist? Does he love me? Is Jesus the only way? How does that work with science? Um, we, we've a- answered a ton of these. If you've missed any of those or any of our other messages, you can jump on our website or the app, and not only can you watch or listen to those, but then you can follow the discussion questions that go along with some of those things that might help kind of guide your processing a little bit. Uh, And so please feel free uh, to do that. This morning, we're tackling another obstacle. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to uh, open them. We'll be looking first in Ephesians chapter 5, or I'm sorry, excuse me, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. We'll get to that here in a second. And really, in short, the question that we're asking is this. Is God, or, or better, is the Bible pro-slavery? This has been a question, especially when it comes into race relationship uh, within the church, that people will read through the scriptures, especially in the book of Exodus and others, and go, wow, it seems to me as I read through the scriptures that God kind of allows for slavery. And so how do we address that? And so I just want you to know my hands are literally dripping um, because I've never preached on this topic. This is my first time. Uh, I've done an enormous amount of research and study and prayer uh, over this. And so I'm going to ask for your prayer. I have a gnarly headache. uh, And so I'm just going to ask that you be praying for me as I uh, speak because you don't need to hear from me. You need to hear from God. Uh, And so please uh, pray for me. This question, is God or is the Bible pro-slavery? This is an interesting uh, question because you might go, well, I've never asked that. And and what I would encourage you to do is go, okay, no problem. Ask non-believers if that's ever been a stumbling block for them. And it will commonly come up, uh, especially in kind of new atheist attack on religion, specifically talking about race and faith. And this isn't exactly a a talk on race, and you're going to understand that uh, in a moment. The accusation that God might be pro-slavery is not uh, inexplicable. It has seemingly some face value uh, support to it, and not just in the Old Testament laws and regulations but in the New Testament uh, epistles written by the very apostles of Jesus Christ. And so what we want to do is go, okay, rather than us just be defensive and give a bunch of answers, let's actually dig into that as we've done all the other topics. Let's give it an honest look and and take a look at it. So we see in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, bond servants or slave, if you would, uh, obey your earthly masters. It's in the New Testament. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, bond servants or slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, servants be subject to your masters. And, and we could go on and on and on with additional uh, passages. And so the question is for us this morning as, as a gathering of Christ followers, how should Christians respond to this issue? How, how do we address this, A, within our own hearts and minds, but then how do we also address this in culture with, with friends and neighbors and associates and people who we choose to take an additional look into Christianity? Um, as I said, it's a complicated issue. It certainly isn't going to be fully unpacked in a single message, but there are several points that can begin the conversation, and in the end, we clearly see that not only is God, but also the Bible is not pro-slavery. We want to make that abundantly clear uh, at the very outset. But when we read verses like this, we, we hear common English translation of a bondservant as slave. And, and this is really uncomfortable for us, especially in the United States, uh, uh, looking at our history of our behavior, sometimes in the name of church or God uh, or what is right and what is wrong. It's difficult. And what we tend to do in the church is we will tiptoe around this because it's really uncomfortable. And there's guilt and there's some shame associated with that. In other circles, there's defensiveness, wanting to go, well, this is what they were thinking. This is what, what was going on in the time. And yet we end ultimately with that it is such a dark time of our history as a nation. So it's very, very, very uncomfortable. But we see this word slave in light of our own historical context, especially in our education growing up. And we typically think of race-based chattel or traditional personal property slavery. That, that's what we tend in America to kind of think of in which the slave is the property of the master and lacks any legal rights whatsoever. That's kind of the context that most of us will approach this idea. But this kind of slavery, that, and again, let's just keep saying it over and over, the most despicable institutions ever to disgrace human civilization. But that's not, however, the view in these texts. So what we want to do is, is take what, what we view as kind of our social norm, our historical norm of, quote, slavery, and we want to set that here to the left. And what we want to do is look at what was going on in biblical times with slavery. Not that we don't care about this to the left. Are we all on the same page with that? But we just want to give it an honest look because the question is, what did the scripture say? So we have to look at the context of what scripture is referring to. The Greek word is doulos. Everybody say doulos. doulos. Yeah, and here's the idea. The only reason we bring up, and all of us who preach will bring up Greek and Hebrew words, is, is not to flatter you, not to make you confused or anything. It's to help you understand because the more that you understand scripture, especially original words, all of a sudden scripture begins to come to life. And we begin to understand it's the only reason for historical study of these words. This word doulos can be translated as slave or sometimes servant or bond servant. It often referred to people 
get this, who had a surprising level of legal and social status in the uh, Roman Greco world. In other words, they actually had rights different than our form or our approach to slavery. Most of them, most of those individuals that is referred to in the scriptures, they were not slaves from birth or even throughout their entire life. And it certainly wasn't because of their race. Now, again, this is different than our understanding of, quote, slave. It wasn't because of their race. For instance, the Roman jurist Gaius, uh, second century, he claimed that most slaves were prisoners of war that unless they were taken into slavery would have been mutilated, abused, or other words, died. And so it's important for us to kind of understand some of this. Similarly, in the Old Testament, you can look at Exodus chapter 21. Go ahead and throw your finger in uh, uh, Ephesians 5 and turn with me to uh, Exodus 21. This is the most often brought up passage uh, that God is pro-slavery or that Scripture supports slavery. It tells us that Israelite regulations freed slaves, not uh, put them into change, but actually freed slaves every seventh year, commanded the death penalty for man-stealing, and generally sought to limit the institution in the protection of the slave. And interesting enough, slavery was generally not organized by race, but by circumstances and economics. Again, very different than ours, usually with a debt attached to it. And bless you, not because uh, you sneeze, but truly, who sneezed? Bless you. Yes, awesome. All right, so there was a debt or an economic status attached to this. Hear this loud and clear. God doesn't condone slavery even in biblical times at all. But if mankind was to act in such a way as to implement slavery into their existence, then God would give guidance to treat those slaves better than they otherwise would have received. And sometimes what we can do is to go, oh, okay, that means God is pro-slavery because he gave guidance to that. No, no, no. Let me give you the example. I will tell my kids and have told uh, all my kids, especially Naomi, don't drink. Don't be an underage drinker. But if you do drink, don't drive. That doesn't mean I condone the behavior of someone drinking who's underage. But if you're going to do something stupid and drink under the age of 21, don't get behind the wheel. Don't do that. So someone could go, oh, Brian, as a parent, condones that behavior because he gave guidance to it. No, you're seeing it wrong. You got to see everything else that I say to specifically my daughter. Same thing. You, we might say, listen, don't have premarital sex. But if you do, use protection. Does that mean I'm condoning the behavior? No. I'm saying, don't do something stupid. But if you do, don't be as stupid as you can. <laughs> right? God knows we're sinners. God knows we're going to do things that aren't of him, and so he gives guidance to some of those things. He only wants our heart. He, we, we read the great, the great Commission. We also read the Great Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your, all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. But if you don't do that, then fill in the blank. 
And slavery, the idea of slavery from the beginning of time all the way throughout our experience in America is completely against God's heart. But there's guidance to it to give some direction so that those who are brought up in that area of slavery are treated better than they would be if they didn't have the guidance. And so just so I'm clear, slavery in any sense perverts God's created intention for human beings. And there is no wiggle room at all. And there are some harsh passages that we have to deal with, and we're going to try and deal with those. There are some difficult passages, yes, but there is a vast difference between the deplorable wickedness that we see in a film like 12 Years a Slave. Any of you seen that? And raise your hand if you've seen it, 12 Years a Slave. There's a big difference between what that movie accurately portrays, and it's actually much worse than that, and what Paul is addressing in the first century church in Ephesus, or Abraham's relationship with his top servant in Genesis chapter 24. Some of these, we're not going to have, we don't have the time to read several chapters this morning, so I'm just going to say, read uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, read Colossians 3, read 1 Peter 2, read Exodus 21, read Genesis 24. It's going to give you more of a holistic idea on this. But there's a big difference between that movie and what is being addressed in Scripture. Now, this doesn't answer the question, but it more accurately frames the question of, is God or the Bible pro-slavery? Does God condone it? Does he turn a blind eye and just pretend like it's not happening? This allows us to frame it a little bit better. But to further answer the question, we must look at the entire Bible. We can't just grab a scripture passage and camp on that. We've got to look at the entire breadth of scripture. So let's keep digging. Theologians use a term called progressive revelation. Any of you ever heard of that phrase? Progressive revelation. This simply means that God didn't reveal his will and his character, who he is, his heart, his mind. He didn't reveal that to humanity all at once, but gradually over a period of time. You want my two cents? It's because we can't handle the truth. Name the movie. Nice. All right. We can't handle it. If God were to go, here is all of me. Nicely done. I'm going to start quoting scripture and see if you can tell me that reference, all right? <laughs> He's like, man, I know my movies. Boom. All right. So listen, God knows I can't just reveal everything about who I am all at once because you can't handle me. He even tells people in scripture, you got to look down. Don't look up. I'm about to pass in front of you because why? You can't handle me. You can't even see me and live to tell about it because I'm too much for you. Some of you wives, turn to your husband and say, I'm too much for you, right? <laughs> Valentine's Day, hopefully some of you guys nailed it. Some of you aren't sitting with your wives and we'll just assume you didn't. All right. So God didn't reveal himself all at once. It's the progressive revelation, not only in scripture, but God continues to reveal himself even to this day. Do you think you've seen or know everything there is to know about God or that God can continue to reveal more about his character? There is more of God to be had. Don't ever think to yourself, I know all there is about God. I've heard it all. 
because there's always more. Billy Graham was, was quoted as saying, I'm still learning about my God right on his deathbed. And I hope to God that Irv laying in his bed this morning is learning about God's heart and his character. It's this progressive revelation. And because of that, we have to look at the entire biblical account in order to interpret it fairly. We can't just grab a, a passage here and there. So that's progressive revelation. Christians also believe that God reveals himself in historic revelation. Historic revelation. And even to evil societies within them. That means that even as Pharaoh is destroying God's people, even though the emperor Nero is, is having game at the, at, the, uh, at the expense of Christians... Even though Hitler is doing away with millions of people in the gas chambers, that God still can reveal himself in a historical context. That our evil of this world doesn't, pro, uh, doesn't stop, doesn't preclude God from revealing himself. And we, we might think this might not seem right, but it is if we stop and think about it. And the reason is, unless we are going to require that God extinguish all evil in this world, and then he can reveal himself. And that would be bad news for you and I. Because you and I would have no revelation of God if that were so. If God had to literally wait until all was right, no more evil, no more pain, no more suffering, no more evil deeds, then God acts, we would be in big trouble. We wouldn't even know who God is because of the world that we live in, because of the things that we see, the things that we play a part in. A moral urging in a document like an epistle may not tell you everything that you need to know about God's will and his character and his heart and his mind. In fact, it's probably going to give you a more accurate day-to-day -day live look in at what was going on in those times than to address everything that we're wrestling with today. But it does not mean that historic revelation isn't present. I'll give you an example. It's fitting for our current times. I might say to a neighbor, hey, you should go vote. It's important. You should go vote. Well, this does not, this phrase, me encouraging someone to go vote, doesn't say that I am completely pro and think that our form of democracy is the best thing since sliced bread and that it is absolutely perfect. You'd have to interview me a little bit more to find that out one way or another. But all I'm saying is go vote. You couldn't just make an assumption. Same thing, I might encourage my kids, hey, listen, when you're in school, obey and respect your teachers. And you might do a little digging, find out who my kids' teachers are and go, oh, that means Brian is supportive of this lifestyle and these thoughts and this outlook on these teachers, he's very pro them. And I would go, no, not necessarily. You'd have to find out a little bit more. But my mere instruction of respect and obey your teachers is just a platform statement. You'd have to find out more about what I'm saying. 
In a similar way, practices like slavery and polygamy and divorce were common in ancient times. But listen to this. Biblical instruction that allows for them in certain contexts isn't necessarily biblical approval. You have to know more about the situation that's going on and the whole scripture from start to finish. Just like a conversation that you might hear between me and my daughter, you can't just grab that. You've got to understand even more. So let's keep digging. There are two massive mountain peaks in the biblical revelation that must be taken into account in order to understand exactly what's going on. Number one is creation, and number two is the gospel. These, these are absolutely fundamental. And almost every area of apologetics will come back to one of these two things. Okay? So this is what's really important. Creation tells us humans are made equally in God's image. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 9. And the gospel, which tells us that God has overcome racial, social, religious divisions at the cross. That's where it was defeated. That's where it was made right. That's where everything came together. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2 and Galatians chapter 3. And because of that, one day, God will combine a group of people from every nation, every tribe, and every people, and every language. Revelation chapter 7. And those people will dwell together in perfect harmony. I can't wait for that day. I cannot, I cannot wait. Uh, I, the closest thing that I can even come up with, and I'm sure it's short-sighted, so please don't send me an email and tell me everything that's bad with this, but the closest thing that I can come up with is like the United Nations meeting where you look around in the circle and, man, there's just people from all over the world. That's the closest thing that I can kind of think of. I would love just to go and sit in a United Nations meeting and just be with people from every tongue and different outfits and, and different political views and worldviews and just sit with them. I want that so bad. This side of heaven, I'm never going to experience that. But wow, can you imagine what heaven's going to be like? Every shape, every height, every color, every native tongue, but it's not going to come to full fulfillment until God brings everyone together in perfect harmony in heaven. These two things are very important, creation and the gospel. Why is this important? Creation is essential to consider because it reveals God's original intent for the human race. You know exactly what the original intent was. We can argue it, we can look at other passages, but creation is extremely clear on what his intent was. And the gospel is essential because it reveals the ultimate course of God's redemptive work. You can't have one without the other. It's all part of God's plan. And so if we latch on to a passage, for instance, like Ephesians chapter 6, bond servants obey your masters, but neglect the larger, larger context of the biblical story, we may miss the forest within the trees. And we don't want to do that. We want to be an educated follower of Christ. 
We want to be equipped so that we can have great dialogue with our neighbors that don't look like us, that don't talk like us, that don't dress like us. I hope that's a desire of yours. Life is super boring when you're just around people that look, act, and sound like you. Like, just look in the mirror and go, man, would I like to hang out with me all day, every day? I wouldn't. Maybe you would like to hang out with you all day, every day, but being around different people is so healthy. And so we can't just latch on to those things and then form a judgment. I'll give you another example. Is Stan here? Perfect. <laughs> Stan's one of our elders. He's a doctor. And imagine telling Stan, Stan, if you're watching this, we're thinking about you. Uh, imagine telling Stan, look him in the eye, kind of raising one eyebrow, squinting with one, opening the other. I can't really do that right now because my head hurts. And you look at him and go, you're a bad doctor because of the incision he made on you hurts. Or the practice that he performed on you hurts. And you don't take into consideration his education. You don't take into consideration his experience. You don't take into consideration his prognosis of you. But because what he's doing to help you hurts, you stare at him and go, you, Stan Higgert or an awful doctor. It would be shallow and at best a reactionary statement. And that's what we're trying to do with this question series is take honest look at these topics and don't give reactionary, knee-jerk, emotionally charged reactions, but actually take in what's happening and then have a logical, faith-based, open-minded, open ears, open heart response to those topics. Again, uh, we said this in week one, and, and it's worth repeating. This series is not to set you up to be right. You gain nothing by being in a conversation with someone, especially someone who's far from God, and being right. You gain nothing by that, other than maybe patting yourself on the back. But to engage in a dialogue to have a, uh, a, a, an in-depth discussion and wrestling with some of these topics, that's very healthy. We understand that? Okay. So someone might say, well, even if we assume that we're dealing with, in the most cases, a lesser form of slavery, and perhaps God is giving his revelation in a historical context, the question still remains, why doesn't the Bible say more about slavery? And to that question, if, if someone were to ask me about that over coffee, I would sympathize with that question. And in fact, I have some of those questions as well. However, one final passage has helped me over the years, and it has deepened my conviction that the Bible as a whole is utterly opposed to any form of slavery. I cannot say that enough. Turn with me to the book of Philemon. I'll give you some time because uh, I know you were in that book this week. Um, the book of Philemon, there's a table of contents in your Bibles if you want to look at the page. It's really towards the end. Uh, just head... You could even start at Revelation and then go backwards, uh, and you'll hit it pretty fast. Uh, the book of Philemon, this is Paul's letter to a slave owner. His name happens to be Philemon, yeah, fitting, about his runaway slave, Onesimus. So this guy, in fact, the whole occasion for Paul's writing 
is that Onesimus is, since running away from Philemon, he became a Christian. This, is, this isn't the first, but it has happened. So, so this, quote, runaway slave has run away from Philemon. In the midst of his running away, he found Christ. He found Christ's love. He found mercy. He found forgiveness, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And if scripture were so truly pro-slavery, what would you expect Paul to say here in the book of Philemon? What might be something you would hear? Anyone willing? Go back to your master. You know what you're supposed to do. Go back, turn yourself in. Do what you're supposed to do because you are a slave. That's what we might hear from the scriptures if the scripture and God's heart were pro-slavery, but we don't hear that. Interestingly enough, Paul instructs Philemon in Philemon chapter 1, verse 17, to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother. And he appeals to Philemon to receive him as you would receive me. I'm going to pause and go slow here for this final part because I don't want you to miss the heart of Scripture right now. Paul dissolves the slave-master relationship and establishes in its place a brother-brother relationship in which the former slave is treated with all the dignity with which the apostle himself would be treated. This is monumental. The Bible says, and, and here's some correlation to connect the dots. The Bible says you were once a slave to your sin, but now you have been set free. It goes on to say that you are now not an orphan, but you have been adopted and you are a royal priesthood. You are afforded everything that is available in heaven, in the glory of God's existence, is available to you. You are no longer a slave, but you have been set free. Paul then takes this and he abolishes this idea of slave master. Why is this important? Because even before the actual institution of slavery is abolished, the work of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross abolishes the assumptions and the prejudices that even make slavery possible. And so it begins in the New Testament saying all the mindset, all the thinking, all the processing, all the arguing that even allows for slavery, I am going to abolish that, the foundation of the behavior. I'm going to abolish the foundation and the behavior is soon going to fall. That's the heart of God. Paul's epistle to Philemon may not compare to a full rejection uh, of slavery because it's operating in a particular context and it doesn't speak to society, but I think it shows the logic of how the gospel is utterly opposed to slavery. 
In fact, the work of Christ, the heart of God in regards to that. At the very least, considering Paul's counsel to Philemon, it makes it difficult to simply just grab uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3 and then consider that the issue is settled. And that's not fair. It's not fair to grab some of these and just say, well, the issue is settled. God thinks this way. No, no, no. We've got to at least honestly take a look at all things considered. Is there more to unpack on the topic for the objector to God based on passages that speak very little against or, or for uh, a governing practice of slavery? Yes, absolutely. There's certainly more to be said, but hopefully it's useful to draw attention to some of these other passages and, and kind of connect them throughout ancient slavery and slavery in more recent times and to consider how we can work through this historically. Above all, I find it most helpful to consider the example of Jesus Christ himself. To whom all the scriptures point. Every page points to Jesus. When I consider Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, I know that I have good reason to trust that God's heart is good. And whenever I struggle, whenever I have difficulty, I go back to the heart of God uh, that, that permeates, that, that gives the best example on the cross. And in that, I find hope. I find comfort. I find some direction. Does it solve every question that I have? Listen, if you are thinking, before I give everything to God, I'm going to have every question answered completely and fully without any other wiggle room. I'm sorry, friend, you're going to be struggling your whole life. That is not going to happen this side of heaven. But you can have some direction. And this gives me hope and perspective that I need to keep wrestling. Because if I don't have hope and perspective, then my wrestling scares me. Are you with me? As I wrestle with eternity, as I wrestle with people going to hell, as I wrestle with sin, as I wrestle with slavery, as I wrestle with race, as I wrestle with abortion and divorce, and, and the list goes on and on. As I wrestle with these things, if I don't have hope and perspective and proper understanding of Scripture, I get scared. And my faith can be rattled. But if I hold on to the Scriptures, if I hold on to my experiences... If I hold on to my relationship with God, I have peace. And it allows me, in fact, it, it makes me want to ask more questions. For some of you young people in this room, and I'll let you decide if that's you. For some of you, I can honestly tell you it's not. <laughs> but for some of you young people, don't ever allow yourself to explicitly or based on your interpretation here, me asking questions is bad. If you ever hear that intentionally or just based on your interpretation, reject it at all cost. Keep asking questions. 
keep digging, keep thumbing through the pages, keep reading other people's writings on the pages, sit with people who don't agree with you, get their opinion, go, go sit at Starbucks with people and just gather information. Don't be so set in your ways that you won't listen to anybody. Don't be that person. And then finally, and I know this is not a race talk, this is talking about slavery in the scriptures, but I do have to address this. And I didn't plan on this, so I got to figure out how I say it. Sometimes I think it's easy for us in the church to look at race relations in our country and point fingers and say, what's wrong? Those people are wrong. How they're handling is wrong. That demographic is wrong. That, that demographic acts this way, etc. There is bigotry everywhere. In fact, there isn't a single person in this room that you've not had a bigoted thought, regardless of what you look like. But this country and us as a church, the church worldwide is not going to change culture until we take honest looks at ourselves and confront what we know is deep within. Some of that is how we were raised, how you were raised, the context that you were raised in. And so I just want to encourage you as you continue to, to think about this idea, as you think about people who don't look like you, talk like you, dress like you, is to confront your own judgment in your heart. Don't justify it. Don't allow it to sit there. Don't allow it to take up residency. Confront it. Find out why it's there. Address it. Bring it before the Lord and go, hey, you and I both know what I'm thinking and feeling isn't of you. And so I just I want to admit that to you and surrender it before you and allow God to change you. Because that's God's heart. But in regards to slavery, as we get ready to end here, how you doing? Are you good? Just playing a little ditty down there. Um, as we get ready to close here, I just want to reiterate Anything in any context that supports, lifts up, justifies, argues for, champions any form of slavery in any place in this world at any time of history is of the devil. It is not of God. And the Bible supports that. That's God's heart. And that's truth. So let's pray together. So God, we continue to wrestle with some of these questions. Sometimes we can read the Bible and we can go, man, seems like, seems like God's heart's a little harsh. And we just want to say so clearly to all of those who are here this morning and for those who are watching and listening online, your heart is the farthest thing from harsh. 
your heart is patient, it's loving, it's kind, it's gentle, it endures all things, it constantly looks for hope. And the only reason we take breath in and out of our lungs right now is because of your grace. The only reason that we are not caught up in a fireball of judgment right now is because of your mercy. Both as a people group, as a nation, as a culture, but also us individually, personally. And that grace, that love, that forgiveness is offered every second of every day. And it will never know an end until the day, Jesus, you come to truly set the captives free, to bring every people group, every tongue, every nation together at your dinner table. And I can't wait for it. God, thank you that your heart is to create the brother, brother, the sister, sister to take away the slave and the master, both physically in relationship, but it's also to separate the master of sin from the sinner. For we are no longer slaves. We have been set free. We don't serve our sin. We're not subject to its authority. Your cross broke that, and we are thankful. So help us, Lord, to continue to, to look at ourselves, to examine our own hearts, to examine our own judgments, our own bigotry, uh, our own outlooks, our own judgment on history, and to not be safe in our own justification, but to bring it before you and bring it before Scripture and bring it before others so that it can be well-rounded uh, to your heart. So thanks. Thanks for who you are. Hear our worship now as we rejoice in, in your heart and who you are and your character. In Jesus Christ, our risen King, we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?